Um, tonight, so the Bible is compiled, assembled, so to speak, or preserved, if you would, functionally in two sections. The first section telling of the section to come. The section to come, the New Testament, is the declaration, the revealing of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, which is where we'll be tonight, is compiled of 39 books. And in those 39 books, we have um, the separating point for many people, kind of easy place to find is the book of Psalms. You know why? Because it's so big. <laughs> so when you open it up, if you know you're in Psalms, okay, that's kind of, okay, I know where I'm at. I got to go left or right from here. So tonight, you'll be going to the right into what's called the prophets. There's the one category, one way people have kind of ordered it, if you would, by title, is the major prophets. You know, so you would have uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. So they're major not in that they're more important or superior. It's just that the content is more. So they're, they're grouped right after um, the book of Proverbs, Psalms and Proverbs. And then after um, Daniel... You have these ones that are referred to as the, the minor prophets, you know, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So tonight we're going to be looking at the next one after Nahum. We looked at Nahum last week. Tonight we'll be at Habakkuk. So if you want to turn there, if you have a digital format, Maybe a little easier to find, physical, whichever. We will project as well as we go through this. And I love the Old Testament when we can seek application. I love the history of it because it does present history at what happened. It reveals the, the condition of humanity, meaning fallen or in sin. Um, it reveals the character of God. And that is what he does about what man has done. And what we know that that character reveals is it, it unfolds the solution, which is the Messiah, which is we know to be Jesus, who is what we read so much about in the New Testament, of course. So in the Old Testament, we're, we're hearing about this history and all this unfolding, but we also see these principles. They're like the foundation, or they're, they're like embedded within this historical uh, account or this prophetic declaration. Prophecy is God's word in a given situation. Prophecy is God's word about a coming condition or situation. Many times the prof prophecies uh, we see, primarily I would say, not exclusively, but of course these ones we're looking at here the last, couple, the last week, this week, and in other portions of prophetic teaching, there's a contemporary fulfillment. So they're speaking to the issues of the day, whatever it may be, whether it's with the Assyrian invasion, which is a result of Israel rejecting God, and so they were punished. And tonight we'll be looking at the before the Babylonian um, invasion, if you would, because the nation Judah had basically rebelled against God as well. And so we have that contemporary fulfillment. We have then sometimes embedded a um, 
end times fulfillment, which would be what we would be looking for. We'd be reading this here in the Old Testament, living here and knowing this is to come. Well, this has a correlation to over here and what's going to happen, which I find very fascinating, of course. And there's another element is messianic. Messianic prophecy speaks of uh, application to the Messiah, how this relates directly to Jesus. And then I would suggest the fourth one we always want to consider is the personal application. Now, it's kind of the personal, if you would, maybe not fulfillment, but, but how do I live this out? How do I take hold of this and, and not stretch the text, but literally let that principle that is really kind of set, and we'll see a lot of this tonight. How do I let that, let that shape my life? Well, it's not just intellectual exercise. The natural man cannot discern, cannot separate, divide, and grasp the things of the Spirit, for these things are spiritually discerned. So we really need God and the person of the Holy Spirit to, to walk us through how to live this out. So before we jump in, let's, uh, let's pray. God, thank you for just the place to gather. Thank you, Lord, for the people here and online, Lord, that we can turn our hearts, our time, our attention towards you as an act of worship. So much we don't know, so com- much confusion that's in our world, and even in our own minds many times, Lord. We believe, but yet we doubt. We love you, but then we are so confused by the things around us. And we're just thankful, God, that we can lay all this at your feet, that we can come in here, that we can settle our heart where we're hearing this message, and you would speak to us. And so speak to us, Lord, we pray that you would direct our steps as a gathering, as a people, Lord, that here at Calvary Chapel Mountain Home, that we would see your direction for this season and this time. Lord, that you would draw each one of us to a closer walk with you, that we would see our part together as you have knit us together for your purposes, that we would be literally united by you, God, to accomplish what you want, not of our determination, but literally out of your leading and direction. And so walk us through the word tonight. We ask it in your name, Jesus. We're confident that you want us to grow. You desire for us to mature and to understand your ways even more. And you'll bring that about, Lord. And so thank you in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, in Habakkuk. So... A key point in the Bible, or the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, it was brought from God through a person called Moses. It literally, God just brought his heart into the mind and body, so to speak, of Moses and brought forth his word to humanity through him, to these five books. One of those books was Deuteronomy, or is Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, as God is telling this gathering of people, this family that had, in captivity, had grown into a nation, as he's telling his, his people, this is, this is my direction for your lives. And when you, when you follow this direction, you're going to see there's, there's benefits to, there's blessings to being obedient because you're letting me lead you. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 14... It's kind of the details of the blessings of obedience. And then in the next section of Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 to 68, it's the painful price of disobedience. 
Some call it the curses. I, I, don't, I have a problem with just how my brain processes that word. But simply put, it's just when you disobey what God has directed you to, there's consequences to that. And we know that that's true even in our lives. When we, as children and maybe young adults, we're not willing to do what we're instructed to do, when we are literally disobedient, we are disciplined, we are corrected. If the ruling authority, we'll say the parental authority in our life, loves us, they're going to try to implement something to change our behavior because our behavior is going to cause a lot of problems. It's only going to get us room and board and punch in license plates. You know what I'm saying? It's just going to, it's going to, it's going to be a bad thing. So we, we, they're going to bring this corrective force, if you would. Now, some people respond well to the knowledge of discipline, right? Some people don't. Some people spend their life blaming somebody else when they get corrected. They just, I don't know why it is, they just refuse to recognize the truth that there is correction with love. Love has to be you know, able to correct. Well, you can read it some other time or whatever in Deuteronomy 28. It's an amazing list of the various things that unfold. Like I say, verses 14 to 68, a lot there, that if the nation doesn't follow God's direction, he loves them enough to bring about correction. And he'll bring correction in the means he sees as best and what's most appropriate. So that's kind of what we're going to be seeing unfolding in Habakkuk. I don't really know how you're supposed to say it. I've heard Habakkuk. I've heard Habakkuk. You could probably say Habakkuk because there's two Ks. I don't really, I think he, he'll let us know when we get there if he would prefer to say some other way in heaven. But it means, his name is interesting. It means one who embraces, one who clings. And I think with that knowledge, it helps us to realize he really is clinging to God. But he's got some issues. Like every single human, he has some issues. He has some issues in the way God does things. He has some issues in the way God doesn't do things. And he's trying to work it out, and that's why I find it to be a very interesting um, book. He basically, one interesting thing about this book of prophecy, um, it's a lot about the person, the prophet, and the one he's speaking to, his creator. It's actually a declaration and a dialogue. So he declares, as we'll see in the first part, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? And then God replies to him, which is very interesting because we want to learn from that because I think there's a truth to that for each one of us. Some of us vocalize it or verbalize it. Some of us internalize it. But we see things happening around us and we're like, are, you, do, are my prayers not heard? I, I cry out. I see the injustice. I see the things wrong, horrible, and terrible. I don't know how to say it, but it seems like you don't see it, God. Is that a, do we not say that? I, I think we have to be honest with our thoughts and how we're working through things. And so here we have in, in this section we're going to read through tonight, this, this dialogue and declaration. Let me read to you from uh, David Guzik had shared just from an, uh, another commentator by the name of Boyce. He gives us a little background on the, the time frame and he just reads this way. I'm just going to read it directly. We don't know how old Habakkuk was when he gave this prophecy. But it's likely he lived during the time of the godly king Josiah. There's some discussion of whether where the, 
he, he, he was prophesying what time frame. Probably between 640 and 609 B.C. And then gave this prophecy during the reign of one of Josiah's successors. So it was later in his life, Habakkuk's life. This is the interesting part. Habakkuk knew what it was like to live during a time of revival and then to see God's people and the nation slip into lethargy and sin. Habakkuk had a problem. He had lived through a period of, of national revival followed by a period of spiritual decline. And I want to suggest to you, America is, should learn from this principle. Because we have seen times of, of, of what we could say quite simply, a, a spiritual revival. It, it's historical. You can look back and whether you want to go back into the 1900s, I believe what we're on the, um, I don't know how, I don't know like to say the end of, but at least it seems to be tapering was the revival out of the 60s. It was a type of revival. It's just become a movement. You know, our branch of it, if you would, would be the Calvary Chapel movement. And that really was, was, it just started at that age and, or at that time, and Chuck Smith was a key instrument in that branch. But it wasn't the only branch of revival. There was a lot of things happening, even within, quote, denominations, and, and some that their doctrine didn't even line up with true biblical uh, uh, doctrine and, and, and teaching. There was this amazing thing that was just happening. And it was just coming to fruition and, and God was getting the glory and people were getting saved and lives were being changed and things were happening. I believe it's still happening. But we're also at a point of spiritual decline. Uh, you didn't come here tonight and hear that and go, I, I didn't know that. You're fully aware of what's going on in the world around us and, and you, you certainly got to go, wow, what's going on? Well, there's some parallels to what we'll be looking at. Let me give you some kind of a reference. You know, when you're looking at the uh, Old Testament, and you're looking at these prophecies. This, these Habakkuk would have been a few years before uh, Daniel and Ezekiel. Um, contemporary of Jeremiah and Zephaniah, the fulfillment of this prophecy, um, Judas carried off to Babylon in 586 BC. So Daniel might have been, you know, kind of still, I think he was still alive. Anyway, there's some things you can see in the overlap. Because Nebuchadnezzar, we know, was the ruler of Babylon, and he'll be the one taking a few people out. So let's just jump into the text. I hope that's enough background to kind of give some clarity to it. As I say, let's uh, just kind of walk through. Let's read the first four verses. The burden, which is it's kind of this is what's on the heart of the prophet Habakkuk. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble, for plundering and violence are before me? There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Would anybody be praying that today? Consistently, when you start realizing, once you are able to get out of the spotlight of, of um, you know, the mainstream media, and, you're, and get where you're not blinded by that, that, that presentation of what has the appearance of news, 
and you're able to get over where you can actually start seeing some things that are really happening in our nation, and you see some of the corruption, and you see the immorality, and you see these things that this spotlight says it's not happening, but it's growing around everywhere. And you're like, God, and then you have personal situations, and you have things that you deal with in your community or in your workplace, and you're like, God, is, is the law power? It's not your, are your principles powerless? They seem to not be putting into place. People don't seem to be changing. Things seem to be getting worse. And that's what he's just, this, he's just observing, quite honestly, what historically has happened season and season and season. So here he's making a pretty good case, don't you think? How long shall I cry and you will not hear? Some of you have issued that, that petition. Maybe you went through a relational stress. Maybe you're dealing with financial duress. Or whatever, oh God, when's this gonna, when's this gonna change? Let's uh, now move over to verse five. This is the Lord's reply. So that was, and I wanna encourage you, you know, he is in no, and you're gonna see it through the flow of this book. He's in no way um, disrespectful or irreverent to God. When you have that confidence and that relationship where you know you can pour out your heart not in some type of pity party, poor me, whiny little baby demand, but in a genuine observation. God, is, what is going on? How is this going to unfold? Why is it not changing? And, and it, he, he wants to know. And God replies. Here's the Lord's reply to him. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though I were told you. Keep that in mind as you see his response starting in verse 12. Let's continue on in verse 6. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, which the Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come from violence. They set their, their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold. They heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. So, he is now telling Habakkuk, yeah, it's a mess there in Judah. And you guys are not, because the, the, the judges, you know, their, their judges weren't like our system. Their judges were more of a ruler, more like a, a, a governor of a region type of a capacity, if you would. They were so corrupt. And so unjust. The people were treated terribly. There was, they were being ripped off. All the things in violation of what they knew. So this is happening. And, and Habakkuk said, man, how, this is happening in, in Judah in this, with the, among the Israelites. And God goes, I'm going to do something that you wouldn't believe I'd ever do. I'm going to bring the Babylonians who were horrible. From an ethical and a moral perspective, they were terrible. From, if you want to model how to be warlike brutal and oppressive they were the model and so these Babylonians says I'm going to bring them in 
and you see in the description, they're terrible and dreadful. It, it's, a, it's a group, it's like just they were, they say struck fear, much like the Assyrians as we looked at that in, in, we were reading about in Nahum. They all come from violence. They scoff at kings. They were so forceful, so powerful, and so strategic that when they made an advance on a region, they didn't care who was there because there was nobody that could really stop them. And so once you heard they're, they're coming, you had no defense. So here's this aggressive group. And the one thing he says, which is interesting in verse 11, they, they have this capacity and this power but when you read Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar, who was a Babylonian leader, and specifically in, up to Daniel 6, you remember, you remember um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fiery furnace, those various things? This is the time of Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. And as he conquered them and then set up his system, so to speak, in chapter 6 in Daniel, remember where Nebuchadnezzar goes a little nutso? Because he starts looking around. He's like, look what I did. I can take on anybody. I can take down anybody. I can take out anybody. And, and literally God just said, you know what? You can't do nothing unless I, I allow you to do. You, you're, he, it's weird. He was no more than a pawn, although a powerful, the most powerful figure. He was just a pawn. That God allowed him to do something to accomplish God's purposes. And it's really confusing to the rational mind that he would even use him. But Nebuchadnezzar starts taking credit for it, which is what you see prophetically declared here in verse 11, ascribing his, this power to his God. And so Nebuchadnezzar literally, he's just like, you read Daniel 6, he goes kind of crazy for a few years before he comes to his senses and realizes who God really is. Not that he entered into a relationship, but he realized who the God of power was. So here we have Habakkuk saying, this isn't right. What's going down? And God says, I'm doing something. You just didn't see it. You don't know it, but it's going to actually be very clear before your eyes. It'll be within a couple decades probably of this time, just a guess, an estimate. It'll be so, amazing, or so, so terrible in your mind, you won't believe me. And we know what his response is in verse 12. This is the prophet Habakkuk's question. So think about where he's at. He's got the, uh, the Old Testament. He's got the law. He's got this, this, these guidelines for morality and engagement. The consequences out of Deuteronomy 28, if you don't follow. The blessings if you do. So he knows the nature of God. So he says, are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea? like creeping things that have no ruler over them. We'll stop right there just for a second. So you see what he's saying is, okay, I'm, I'm having a hard time with this, God. You, you're going to use this wicked instrument, but yet you can't stand, you can't tolerate unrighteousness. You, you, as, as he's saying here, you, know, you're, you're, um, you have purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Look on there means you can't approve of. He won't approve of wickedness. 
We know that, correct? Because we live, we read here in history tonight, but we live over here, and what's between here and here is the cross. The cross. So the cross was the reconciliation of wickedness. It was God dealing with a Christ-rejecting world, dealing with a God-rejecting world, a world even among the Israelites that knew what to do and chose not to do it. So that sin, that wickedness, that rebellion, he couldn't just say, it's, oh, I'll just overlook it. We know what he did, the brutality that he went through, what he endured to remove sin, to remove the, the penalty of sin. So he, didn't just, he doesn't look at sin and, ah, we'll just go to heaven someday and we'll all just forget this ever happened. He can't overlook it. He dealt with it. Now remember, Habakkuk is he's knowing the Messiah is coming, but he's on this side of the cross. So he's trying to work this out. How could you be, how could this be? We're bad, but this, this group is way worse. How could you use someone worse than us to discipline us? I don't know why you're doing it that way. Not that anybody in history has ever said that themselves. God, I don't understand why you're doing it this way. It doesn't make sense. You're, 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 you're holy and righteous. And he's not just using those as flowering words in some type of a presentation. He really holds on to this. We're going to see it at the end. You know, my holy one, oh Lord, you've appointed them for judgment. We know they're contrary to you. But you're using what's contrary to you. It's going to be used by you to accomplish your purposes. I don't get that. And, and he struggles with this. Like, how can this be? Verse 15, they all of them with the hook, they catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? The, the whole issue with the net there is, is just speaking of, of wealth and they have everything they need and yet every, how, even though they have all, everything they need, they're, they're grabbing more. You know, the thing about an empire is they always want more. You can look at any of the empires in, in human history, even within the last few hundred years. They always want more. They're never satiated, never satisfied. So here they just want more, and they continue to slay nations without pity. The, the first battle and the second battle, and then the, the success of three in a row starts feeding an ego and pride and believing that we can just do, we can go wherever we want, we'll take whatever we want. And that's what the Babylonians were doing. And, and Habakkuk is like, how's this going to be? Chapter 2 is really a continuation of this first portion of this thought we're reading about here, the latter part of chapter 1. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me. And what will I answer when I'm corrected? So he's like, God, I don't get it. So I need, you need to show me what you're talking about. He's basically saying, I'm just going to go over here. I'm going to go to my room and stay there until I hear from you. So God didn't send him to his room, but he, maybe he's like, you know, I just need to go sit down and wait to see what you're going to do because I don't get this. And I love what he said and what I will answer when I'm corrected. Because he wasn't, we've got to be careful when we're working through these challenges and personal issues that we don't in some way imply that God owes you, owes me an answer. 
like somehow he's answering to me. It's okay for me to pour out my heart, but I want to respect and recognize the relationship. He said to Isaiah, God did, come now, let us reason together, you and I. And so he, he invites us, and there's other portions where we see where he invites us into this relationship. Jesus spoke of the, the prayer that you would have, O Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Speaking of reverence and the relationship. And the willingness, to, as we see in Hebrews, to come boldly into the throne of grace to find mercy and help in our time of need. So we, we got to have this awareness. He invites this conversation and this intimacy and this honesty. But let's not somehow think we have a level or a height or some type of position to where he has to answer to us. I just want to know, God, is there something I need to know? Is there something I'm missing here? I don't want to be irreverent. I don't want to be sarcastic. I don't want to be, you know, a little brat. But I, I just need to know. So, and, and I love Habakkuk's attitude. It just seems to imply, like, I'm just going to sit over here until you show me what I'm missing and, and, and correct me as need be. May that be your prayer. Show me what I'm missing and correct me as need be. Because God's correction will always draw you closer to him. Your correction will push him, push him away. Because your correction is more self-condemning. Oh, I should have known better. And we're, when we're self-corrective, it's not really an accurate term. It's more like self-destructive. Because it does, our correction doesn't bring us closer to him. So I encourage you, just have that uh, simplicity and transparency. You develop it, you nurture it like other relationships. I'm just going to wait and answer. So now in verse 2 of chapter 2, the Lord answered me. Do you see what's happening in this prophecy? We're reading about this dialogue between God and Habakkuk, and it's bringing forth a truth. I mean, their conversation is going to be reality played out in the years to come with the nation of Judah. And, they're going to, and we're going to see about this Babylonian um, invasion, if you would. So here's what the Lord answers him in verse 2. Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. That speaks of, you know, he write it, make it plain, and people will run to it. They want to know the truth, which I believe is a fact. People want to know the truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and it'll have an effect in your life. Remember what that effect was? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. It liberates you to realize, even though it's sometimes like shameful in a way, because of you, when you relate it to yourself, but then when you realize the power of it, it's, man, people want to know the truth. They'll write it in such a way they'll, re, they'll run to it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. It means it hasn't happened yet. It's, come, it's to come at the contemporary time. But at the end, it will speak, and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. That's not a contradiction when it says, though it tarries, it will come, it will not tarry. It's tarry is speaking of, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's going to happen. I, I look at it this way, very simply put. It, God's timing is perfect. And so he's saying, I, I understand you're, you're a little frustrated with the way culture is, with the way society is, with the way things are. But I'm dealing with it in the perfect way, in the perfect time. And it's going to unfold. It's going to happen. It, it's, it's gonna, it will not tarry. Now, verse 4, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith, which is very fascinating. That verse, that latter part, the just shall live by faith, is quoted three different times in the New Testament. 
And most people don't realize that it's out of this kind of obscure book that we can have a hard time pronouncing that this, this declaration, this principle that's brought forth. There's pride in the proud, but the just shall live by faith. So there's a contrast, if you would, between pride and faith. Now, what's interesting is he makes this statement, and he's going to talk about, you know, woe to the wicked. He's going to be talking about, you know, the Babylonians, but I believe he's also talking about the Judeans, the, the Israelites, about everybody, because there is that element of pride that's present, in, in, in we know it because of the way chapter one started, and he presented, what about this injustice? What about our social system? What about these things that are wrong within Judah in that time? Because people were ripped off. There was immorality like crazy. It was just a big mess, because they're coming out of this really affluent time, and now there's a spiritual decline. So affluence has the impression of success, but when there's a spiritual decline after affluence, which is what America is experiencing, when there's this affluence that's leaving people not hungry spiritually, they're satiated on, you know, Cheerios and, you know, cold cereal and stuff here that's not going to satisfy them. We're not hungry for this. So pride is one of the factors. Speaking of affluence, which is kind of where they were at, um, some of you may have remembered... Um, Mark Corey's with the uh, Singapore Air Force. He's back in Singapore now. Um, I had a conversation with him, but he made a statement I found very fascinating. And, and from Singapore, Singapore is a very wealthy country, quite honestly. He said this after his own personal studies and spiritual searching, no society has ever survived affluence. Study that, dig into it, you think about it, it's true. Because with this affluence, and affluence is just having everything you need and a little bit more than you need, then it makes sense because you don't really need some of the things you need. You, I mean, you, you don't want some of the things you need, like spiritual relationship. And many times when we're, you know, we're able to make the car payment and the house payment and maybe we have some investments and maybe things are financially stable and sort of calm and we have somebody bringing in our water, you, don't, you have... Slaves working for you. Do you know that? Many people don't understand that the correlation in Scripture. You don't have to go to the well and get your water. You just have to pay your bill. You don't have to chop wood. Or you, don't have, you, see, you know what I'm saying? That We live in a very affluent time in relative comparison to contemporary humanity. In other words, the, all the people living on the planet, the vast majority live in pretty dire straits and pretty poor conditions. And, and, and poor conditions in the U.S. are not that bad. I know it may be odd to some, but you see, all I'm saying is this pride can start getting going. And, and so let's look at the woes that are presented. See, it says indeed, verse 5 in chapter 2, because he transgresses by wine, he's a proud man. He does not stay at home. Because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. This is speaking, I believe, of the Babylonians. There's something that I found interesting there. He cannot be satisfied. Pride is never satisfied. It's never full. Does that make sense? When we get, start giving in to pride, it's, we just, it just starts being fed in so many different ways. And it's a contrast 
It's, it's almost, it's not quite the opposite, but we see where you, pride, you know, I being the center point of the letter, of the word, I being the emphasis, is, is a contradiction to faith. The just shall live by pride. No, the just shall live by faith. A relationship with the living God, believing his ways are the right ways. So let's continue on as we see here, you know, speaking of not only the Babylonians, we're going to have actually five, four woes we'll, we'll look at here as he's talking about how these people were. And so understand what's happening, and this is a key to this, is, is catching who's talking where and following the flow of the dialogue that unfolds the prophecy to come. Habakkuk, remember what he said? This isn't right. What's going on? God replied, you, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's gonna, it, what's going to happen? You'll, you won't believe that I would even use these people. And then he hears, like, are you kidding me? We're bad. But we ain't as bad as them. How could you use them? Uh, this I don't understand. I, I obviously am not thinking straight. I'm going to sit in my corner right here until you can, uh, believe, you'll show me more what's going on. And now God's saying, okay, well, here's what's going on. I know how bad they are. I understand how pride is present in Judah among the Israelites, but it's manifested in a more evil way among these ones I will use to bring correction upon Israel. Verse 6, Will not all these take up proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his, how long? And to him who loads himself up with many pledges, Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they, they not awaken who oppress you, and you will become their booty? Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Because of men's blood, and the violence of the land and the city, and of all who dwell in it, woe to him who covets evil and gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster." You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. We know from Daniel that the Medo-Persian empire conquered the Babylonian empire and in some of these things here, we really are prophetic in how that all unfolded. But he does say it in a singular sense, woe to him, it's a national thing, Babylonians, it's a personal singular thing in those that are a part of that nation, and it has application for Judah. It has application for you and me. Woe to him who increases, and he just really wants more and more and more, and those, you know, the sum will be awakened. It's, what is practiced will be presented. It will be brought back to you sometimes. It's just a simple principle that, you know, what you engage in God may very well use that very thing to correct you and bring back upon you. Woe to him. And woe is not like, hit the brakes, like W-H-O-A. Woe is like, this is tragic. This is, this is pending. This is coming upon you. Woe. It's, you've seen it, we've seen it from uh, the book of Revelation when we studied that, we studied that. Him who covets evil gain for his house. Verse 11, for the stone will cry out from the walls and the beam from the timbers will answer it. It's like the house is inanimate. But it's almost like God saying, listen, just like the house is aware of everything but it doesn't know anything because it's inanimate, it's like, I know. 
just like that's present, I'm present. I'm fully aware of what's going on. And if that doesn't cause us to go, whoa, like W-H-O-A, whoa, stop. Man, I, you know, what if you, what if I, what if anybody in history, even from this time to, to, to present, got away with something and didn't get in trouble for it? And got away with it again and didn't get in trouble for it? And got away with it again and didn't get in trouble for it? It would be easy to think it must be okay because I'm getting away with it. I actually had a person present to me this logic. And he wasn't, wasn't trying to hide from it. He was just working it through. It's like, you know, I know what God, people tell me that God says about this particular thing. But honestly, I, I'm not bragging and, and kind of shameful. But I, I've been doing that for years and nothing's really bad happened to me. So how can you say that it, God doesn't agree, that God's got an issue with it, if I've been doing it for 20 years and, and I haven't got busted? And my question to him was like, so your measure of his love is how much he beats you down. See, you're saying that if I've been getting away with it, it's okay because I have been getting away with it. So if he'd come down hard on me, that would prove he really cares for me. I'm like, I, I would suggest you consider something else. <laughs> That's really not a, think of the logic there. It's like, you know, if I lose an arm over the issue, I know I shouldn't have been doing it. Well, <laughs> you only got so many limbs, buddy. Maybe you should think about why it's convicting in the first place and why you're questioning why discipline hasn't come upon you. Because you if you know you should be corrected and you haven't been, stop right there and go, it hasn't happened. Maybe I should recognize I know it's wrong and stop doing it before it happens. Wouldn't that make more sense than to say, well, I'm just going to keep doing it. Nothing. And here's what we know to be true. People practice certain things and they get away with it. it it's true but they never get away with it certain practices change character change personality change how change relationships they, they literally change who you are I could just use an example it's one that's pretty simple alcoholism if God didn't want me to drink, he would take away the, the alcohol from being available for me and some of these things people say and so just one drink a night's no big deal and then and you, you work it out. The Bible isn't harsh. I mean, Timothy was told to drink a little wine for his frequent infirmities. There was a medicinal value in that day. But we know what happens. We see it. It's, a, it's, it's billions and billions of dollars a year. Literally millions of people each year die in alcohol-related instances. Because one's okay, one's okay, then two's okay, then three's okay. And we just know, we've seen this sad progression. We've had family members have their lives destroyed and their health lost because they said it's okay and I keep getting away and it doesn't seem to matter and I'm free to do and, and I could probably go through a few things. I could go through some sexual things. I could go through some addictive things, uh, compulsive behavior, certain elements that are just defiance. And we gotta go, man, I don't wanna wait until I get busted. You know, David had that issue, right? So let me just say real quick, and we'll move on through this. So we, we are applying this to make sure we're realizing God knows what's going on. David would not deal with his issues privately, so God dealt with them publicly, agreed? He had the opportunity. He knew what he should do. 
He chose to ignore it and continue down this course with all the warnings he received. He still continued doing what he thought he should do. Pride was welling up within him. He was pursuing this passion. He was caught in the sin. He tried to fix it himself, and he got away with it. He got away with it. Now he brings in Bathsheba. Her husband's dead, David's directive. She's pregnant. She's going to have a child. He's such a noble king because he took care of this poor widow. Until Nathan the prophet shows up. And Nathan says to David, you know, guys, there's something going down in your kingdom. Do you know? There's this guy. And this one guy, and this guy, okay, so this one guy has one little sheep. And, this, and it's, like a, it's like a family member to him. He just nurtures it and takes care. It kind of stays in the house. He's got his own little bed. He's got his couch, you know. He's got a remote control. He's got this little sheep's got everything. He's one of the kids. And then there's this other guy who's got all these sheep. And somebody was traveling through town. And so the guy with all the sheep took that one from his neighbor to slaughter, to feed the traveler. And David popped a gasket. Remember the story? He lost it. He's like, ugh, that man should die and pay fourfold. Pretty harsh judgment, wouldn't you agree? It was not what the word, the law said. David, he's like, no, that guy's going to pay. And, and Nathan goes, you the man. Literally, you are the man. Because David was getting away with it. And then he was never getting away. He was never getting away with it. And in the grace of God, God then just calls him out on it. And we see him repent. It's very much a reason why we see David so uniquely identified in Scripture. The only man that God has chosen to define, not that he's the only one that was this way, but he's the only one that's given this distinction, that David was a man after God's own heart. When? When he was committing adultery or when he was committing murder? You have to ask that question. You have to think, well, how is that reconciled? It's not that as much as he was teachable. Maybe even like Habakkuk, who's sitting there like, God, I need to be correct. I don't understand everything. And David, when he was busted, he said, we're reading this Psalm, but it 53? Is it 51? Psalm 51, I think. Before you and you only I have sinned. That's what David says. Before God and God, he knew this was between me and you first. Yes, it destroyed his family. Yes, it messed up his own family. But David knew my relationship between you and me. This is what it's about. I believe that's what's a distinctive and a quality. Why do I mention David so much and get into such detail? Because woe to him who covets evil. Woe to him who builds with bloodshed. Woe to him who thinks he's getting away with something because he ain't getting away with anything. And it's sad. I, I mean, I could... I can list you. I was talking about this with a friend here recently. I know of four men in our community in 23 years that defied God to the point they are dead now. Literally. One who said, I, God has forgiven me in the past. He'll forgive me for this. In that little office right there, those words were stated to me. And I have one response in that time. I just step back because I don't want to get afterburn. When the lightning hits him, I don't want to be close by. I, mean, I literally was shocked. I'm like, do you realize what you're saying? I know God has forgiven me before. He'll forgive me for this. And sadly, within just a few short period, he, he was gone. 
And I just say that because we sometimes are so, we can get so stuck and so hung up on things that we're not sober-minded to the word of God. It's not fear. It's realizing, man, I don't, I'm going to deal with it now. Let's just continue on. We've got a little time here in verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. We don't even need to get into the reality of sexual immorality and alcoholism and the abuse, and we, you, you know enough, we just move on to verse 16. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be on your glory. I have to wonder if this isn't speaking to Judah, because when it says here that... Um, you know, the, uh, the cup of the, uh, and be exposed as the uncircumcised, that, that would speak of the non-Jews. You, you are doing the things they're doing, and, you, you know, you're not exempt. Yes, these people, these Babylonians, are, they, they put terrible practices, but don't forget some of your own. They're, they're contrary to the word as well. For the violence done in Lebanon will cover you, verse 17, now back to the Babylonians, and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid. Because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Remember, this is God's bringing this woe to this nation that will actually accomplish his correction on Judah. Verse 18, what profit is the image that its maker should carry it? The molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust it to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to wood, awake! To silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. What's he talking about? Idols. Idols. In Isaiah chapter 44, verses 14 to 20, it's almost a snarky kind of (laughs) comment. It's like, let me get this straight. You go and get some firewood. You go cut down a tree. And you cut up pieces of it and you use this section of it to warm your house. And then this section you shape into a little form and you bow down to it. It's the same tree, stupid. Well, what are you thinking? And then he goes on. He said, well, you, you, you do this and then you form this with your hands and you speak to it like it can talk back to you. And you and for one, you, you take a stone and you form an implement or a household good out of it. And the pieces from that that are left over, you put and you worship as if it somehow has power. Are you silly? Because isn't it been fascinating how God just kind of says, come on, just back up a little bit. You're taking a created thing ignoring the creature, the creator, you're taking a created thing, not even a live thing, and you're giving it the form of life. You're taking what is this and pretending somehow it has power to forgive and power to rule and power to provide and power to bless. Are you crazy? And it's kind of what we're seeing here. Woe to him who says to the wood, awake, I'll, you be my idol. It's, to me, it's a really fascinating thing because it's really ridiculous. It really, have you thought about it? I mean, idolatry, forming something with your hands and pretending like that now has authority over you. It's just crazy, but it's common. And here's why I think it is. A portion for sure. God has implanted in our existence the need to worship. And he's shown us who to worship. He's shown us his love, his kindness, his patience, his forbearance, 
his compassion, his empathy, as we've seen even on Sunday, his compassion and pity upon people. It was his desire. And, and yet, we would rather worship mankind. Sometimes we would rather worship the created thing or the lottery numbers or just fill in all the different things. Oh, that's what I need. That's what that's my thing. And, and it's weird because most people nowadays go, well, we don't, we don't worship idols. I don't have the little Buddha thing on the fireplace mantle. I don't have any form and shape that I kind of bow down to or I have in my pocket as a trinket. Anything that becomes between you and God, anything that is your deep desire, something that you'd rather have, is your idol. If it's your replacement, if you have found that to be more important in a very practical way, not anyone can say, well, I don't, I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I don't have to do these things, but you choose to do them over and over. Be real. Practically, that's your idol. It's something that you, you live for, you long for at the expense of your relationship with God. God has created things that we can have and enjoy and endure through. They're just not meant to be the top thing. So those things are you know, not to be worshipped and adored and looked at like, oh, this will provide me with everything. Verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So God has established how we would engage and how we would interact. We know from the Old Testament there was framework and parameters. And there was literally a temple at this time which the Babylonians will destroy. We know also that after the cross, the resurrection and the perfect accomplishment of the redemption of humanity, we're told that our bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. That God literally indwells us now. We're to see that he is literally living within us. That's why we're not to take the word lightly. That's why we're not to just kind of think, ah, you know, it'll all work out in the end. No, we're to want to have a, a life that's, that honors him because it literally it says that he indwells us. He takes up residence within us. And so therefore, our lives should be a reflection of his presence. And as he teaches us and leads us in what it means to know him, for the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Don't let the earth shout like the things of this life. Say it's more important or it's greater. Chapter 3, the prophet's prayer. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on Shigianoth. I don't know, I think it's an instrument. Honestly, that's the only way I would kind of calculate it. It could be a type of meditation, or not meditation, but reading. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. Isn't that a beautiful request? He knew that was coming up. Remember mercy. He's not like he's trying to talk him into something. He's like, God, oh Lord, this is my plea. This is my prayer. This is my declaration. God came from Teman, the Holy One from the Mount Paran, speaking of the south, Paran, probably the desert of Arabia. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like light. He had flash, rays flashing from his hand, and there his power was hidden. Before him was, went pestilence, and fever followed at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. 
O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Your bow, your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon still stood still in their inhabitants. And the light of your arrows, they went at the shining of your glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck. Selah. Selah speaks of pause. You thrust through with his own arrows the heads of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the power in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. I went through that entire section for a reason in that, remember his view back in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. God, how can this be? Are you not doing, are you, you're not doing anything. Nothing's really happening. It's just, how could this be? And now consider where he's at as we progress through this letter, through this prophecy. He is making a declaration, your ways are, your, your ways are above my ways. You're going to move in a way that's going to affect nations. You're going to move in such a manner that you could, you know, even the rivers and the natural order, if you would, the various things that are powerful, the, the storms and all that, he can use them at his discretion. He'll use them for his purposes. All is in his hands. And you see such a, such a uh, I believe, a... It went from woe to awe, so to speak. You know, now he's in awe, like, kind of awestruck. Let's wrap it up because we see in verse um, 17 to 19, it's, think of it this way. It's a humble, joyful surrender. Once again, remembering how it started in chapter 1 and his concern. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... Though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. What if this nation experience a type of judgment? What if we went from affluent to nearly destitute? What if we individually were just scraping to get by? Could we say what's said here? Though all these things happen, yet I, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Because I think, I, you know, I'm not one to say it's going to happen today or tomorrow. I believe it's not really a deep insight for me to say, I believe you could probably agree. This nation, there's things that are declining, and we're right on the edge, the cusp of terrible happenings because of our financial irresponsibility globally. You can't just keep spending money and making money. It's gonna, you're going to pay eventually. And the longer you wait to pay the bill because you keep making the debt bigger, the harder it is to clear the, de- harder it is to clear the debt. You know that from when you were a teenager. Or later, who knows? So it's like, 
that is just pending. And I'm not, that's not even considering the, the sexual immorality, which I think would cause a, a greater judgment. And I just want to say, Christians have got to realize that some of these things that we measure his presence by are stupid. We, we should not be measuring his presence because we got a good loan or we got a good deal or we inherited something or we have some financial stuff. That's not a measure of his presence at all. Those things can be literally seen as his hand, but they can also be a distraction if, we're not, if, they don't, if they're not dealt with properly. What we want to recognize is, you know, you give and take away, blessed be your name. We don't read Job much because we don't want to. Because it's too close to home. It's like, what if? What if? Could God do that? Well, why would he do that? I didn't ask you that. Could God do that? What if God said, listen, this is the, that season is over. And now I'm going to carry you through another season. For some, it'd be like, okay, your finances, are, and now he's going to carry me through. Some, the bigger challenge, and I know not everybody will agree with this. For some, the bigger challenge is financial increase. And having to manage more. And be a good steward with what he's given and properly distribute and deal with it. It seems like, oh, I would love to have that opportunity. No, trust me. I know people that have had to deal with that. And it's a very difficult thing. It requires a lot of humility and a lot of wisdom to manage God's resources for his purposes and for his glory. And so all this to say, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk will probably experience things that he never thought would happen. He already has been told it would happen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for how you have arranged it and more so how you reveal it. Lord, as you speak to us individually and some things, you know, we're, we're scratching our head and maybe a little confused on some things, but there's also clarity in other areas and even deep conviction. Lord. And so God, I just thank you that you reveal things to us. You bring about your correction for intimacy, for closeness. You release us and free us and remind us to let go of the things of this life. The various things that we have maybe inadvertently, possibly subconsciously embraced that really we, we just don't want to be in contradiction to you. Whatever we may have, whatever you have entrusted to us, may it be managed for your glory. May it be used for your purposes. The temptations we face, God, may you give us wisdom. May we not just overlook and continue plodding along. The things that you're telling and speaking to us in correction and reminder, Lord, give us the strength to follow according to your direction. Thank you, Jesus, that you draw us near. Our joy, our hope is in you and you alone. We just thank you in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right.